0: The RTE Rugby World Cup podcast Sponsored by Bank of Ireland Hello and welcome along to the RTE Rugby World Cup podcast where the show is going on Ireland may be eliminated but we're still cranking the podcast out two a week until the end of the tournament Coming up a little bit later on in the pod I'm going to be chatting to journalist Ilta Daffod uh, about what the reaction has been on the ground in France to the host being knocked out of the World Cup But first though it's time for the post mortem of Ireland's Rugby World Cup campaign. I'm joined by Johnny Holland and BJ Botha to talk through it all. BJ, I promise we will give South Africa their credit a little bit later on. First though, we are going to we are going to have to talk about uh, about Ireland. Um in general for the two games overall, uh, BJ, I mean, was that the best the best weekend of World Cup rugby we've been able we've ever had across those four games? And in particular Ireland, New Zealand and France South Africa or France, South Africa in Paris on Sunday night.
1: Yeah, there's unquestionable. It's unquestionable. There's really the standard of rugby played, um, especially back to back games, is definitely the best I think the rugby world cup has ever seen. Um, you know, and also arguably maybe the two best, you know, games of rugby ever played in, in the in the modern era. You know, it was just unbelievable. It had everything. It had everything. Emotion, as we know, with rugby world cup and just attacking and defence and, you know, heartbreaking moments, you know, um, it just had everything. Um, so, yeah, really a great spectacle for rugby. Um, and uh, I think, obviously, unfortunately, someone had to come, in, um, you know, short on the other side and uh, really kind of guts for Ireland. You know, I think they, you know, I don't want to say a team deserved more, but I think Ireland definitely deserved the semi at least. And I suppose having the chat with people, um, I've seen that obviously these in our in ideal world I think should have been semi-finals semi-finals you know um, I don't think that those games are worthy of a quarter-final if, if, if that makes sense you know I yeah. think it was I think it was definitely semis that we were watching there and uh, with all respect to the other teams um, that's sometimes how the pool stages go and you know we can talk about the draws three years ago and all this sort of stuff but it is what it is and um, yeah just unfortunate for Ireland
0: yeah I, like I think I'd, in terms of the draw I think like it Johnny, I think it's something that we should be talking about maybe in a few weeks' time or in a month's time, because I I don't want the the talk of just this draw to overshadow what we kind of need to to talk about with with Ireland's performance and and things maybe that that do need to change. Um to to just continue on the point of just how brilliant those games were and how excellent as a neutral, I would say, the Ireland New Zealand game was. Like there was a brilliant stat from a... Opta Johnny, not you now, uh, actual Opta Johnny, the Opta stats, uh, stats board on on uh, X yesterday. So five minutes, 19 seconds. That's how long Ireland's final 38 phases of rugby were against New Zealand. New Zealand, right to start the game, had their 28 or 27, 28 phase uh, possession, which lasted three minutes and 18 seconds. Up until that game on Saturday night, no match at the World Cup had had a fate had a had had a single possession that lasted longer than two and a half minutes. And here we were at this World Cup quarterfinal bookended by twenty seven phases from New Zealand and thirty eight phases from Ireland and just pretty like I, I think that just sums up how enthralling an eighty minutes of rugby it was forty
2: one or so minutes of of ball in playtime. like it was just remarkable stuff. It was absolutely outrageous, and like I think I can't remember who I said it to the, the other day, but I, you know, France and South Africa was probably the better spectacle, but it just shaded Ireland, New Zealand, and I think that's because, um, I think I think objectively, if if you're looking at Ireland, New Zealand without the emotion, I think you could you could have seen that as well that you know you could flip a coin either, either one of them was a they were both great spectacles, like, but I think when you see um Dalton Papali came on, t- came on onto the pitch, I can't remember what time was it sixty minutes or so onwards, and um. He there's a there's a picture of him or like the video footage of of him at the very end of the game and he just dropped to one knee and you could see that he was spent. It was a thirty-seven phase play, obviously, and um, you know, being a back row trying to get, uh, the turnover and everything else. I assumed I, I didn't play a cam, but I assume he put in a an enormous amount of effort being a, a fresher player on there. But it was uh absolutely outrageous seeing someone like that, uh, dropping to a knee after the effort. You could see as well, like there was there was jogging going on. The headside burn had a carry where the ball was popped when he was like, oh no, go again. You know, so it was, uh, it, we were tired looking at that, that phase, I think, but it was. Uh, it showed how, how close it came uh, at the very end and um, both teams went to the very end. It was, it was you know, an unbelievable spectacle. Uh, much like the, the South Africa-France game. I mean, they both went down to the final play and and uh, big plays in the final play as well. Faf de Clare getting a rip and Sam Whitelock getting a turnover. So yeah, it's uh, it's hard to separate them, but we were treated by Treated to um, unbelievable rugby, just in the wrong wrong end of the the result, unfortunately. And Brendan's Brendan has got a very very South African at the moment his Irish tying has gone after the weekend.
1: Settle <laughs> down. And obviously, big moment.
0: <laughs> the like you mentioned, the thirty seven phases. I I went back on Sunday afternoon. And I was looking. I just I wanted to see like which Irish players we're logging the most carries in that and just like what was the breakdown of of who had the ball and you look like jack conan carried six times in those five minutes tyke Byrne, jimmy o'brien uh and ronan keller all put in five each and there was another you're talking one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. i think 11 or 12 players had a had a carry in it i'd love to do the the similar breakdown and see how many tackles certain new zealand players put in over that uh that few minute period as well but johnny one of the I suppose one of the most frustrating things about this game and this World Cup is because it's ended in the quarterfinal, it's automatically going to just get filed away in the quarterfinal defeat section of Irish rugby history. Um, But when you look at it, like it's just so frustrating because it was not like uh, Wellington in 2011 where Ireland never landed a shot or Cardiff in 2015 against Argentina or Tokyo in 2019 against New Zealand where... They were just blown out of it instantly and were just constantly chasing and could never really get back into it. This was okay, they were 13-nil down, but this was a game that they had several chances to win and just couldn't land that final blow.
2: Yeah, I think it will be frustrating because I think there's um there's a lack of maturity from certain corners when you talk about Ireland's quarter final bow out. I think this was so different. You know, it'll be used against them and it'll be a, a slaggy match at some stage from the different nations, especially when you get into the next workup, but and, and you can talk about this the draw and it should be a semi final and all that. I, yeah, Ireland would have gotten past the might have gotten past the quarter final if the draw had gone differently, but they still would have, wouldn't have gotten what they wanted if they played this game in a semi final and got knocked out because then they were so close to possibly going on and winning it. So I think the quarter final talk is cheap, like you know, um, the game itself was, um, you know, worthy of like you, you know, you, you think you're going to see the the winner from those two quarterfinals so obviously we know what was at stake and and how well they went but it is going to be frustrating when this is held over them like you said there they were they were so close 18-17 with Aaron Smith off the pitch and Ireland had a couple of chances and I I don't want to be critical of them I mean they played the game and you have to be bold I I would have gone for the post at 18-10 and gone 18-13 and stayed within a score because I was afraid that New Zealand if they got outside of that uh, eight points wasn't it that they'd be very very hard to claw back but Ireland went brave and they got 18-17 through the James Gibson Park uh peel off the off the 6 plus mall but it was in the, the second half of it when i thought they had some chances to to fire that shot and i think if it was south africa they would have gotten tighter to get ahead ireland never went ahead and they never really racked new zealand that way i think if they had gone ahead it would have been a different story and unfortunately a couple of those plays were um the they came off the mall and hit up the middle, and Jameson gives a bark turn and kicked it to Pete Omani with a crossfield kick up over Richie Mwanga, who's covering the, mm-hmm. the wide defence where Aaron Smith would normally cover it. Obviously, they're similar sized players, so mightn't have changed what they were uh, planning on doing regardless. They might have been kicking it on Aaron Smith. It might have been something they were looking at at some stage, but geez, I'd love to have kept that tight. Uh, go for the line, if not. Uh, grind out a penalty and go ahead. I think that's what South Africa would have done. I think that's what France would have done. They would have rumbled a bit, a bit better without giving away cheap possession with a contestable in the air. I know if you caught it, it's a magic play and they're going ahead. But like I think, in hindsight at least, you could have kept that a bit tighter and uh, and gotten your score to go ahead and then it's a different game and a different pressure on New Zealand and I think there was a couple of plays like that I know the one that didn't bounce up for Dan Sheehan that was kind of speculative it was a good good decision maybe but yeah. um, there was one other where James Gibson Park turned and threw the long pass that Aaron Smith intercepted and I think they were two big chances where Ireland could have built that pressure and I know like you can go back and say New Zealand had their number in defence they weren't letting anything in easy but you get a penalty like they got penalties already early in the game Arlie Sevea not rolling away and all those kind of small ones you might have gotten a penalty to go ahead. And I think they might, if they have regrets, that's going to be one of them.
0: Yeah. And BJ, the yeah. I, one of the big differences between last year's series against New Zealand and the match on Saturday night, is you look at the difference in the New Zealand pack and how they've changed over the, the last 12 months. And so many people have been giving a lot of credit to to Jason Ryan for the work he's done there. We'll get to the scrum in a few minutes, which was obviously huge. But even if you just look at the, the back rows specifically, um, Richie McCaw came out afterwards and said that was probably the best game he's ever seen Sam Kane play for the All Blacks. He put in two absolutely enormous tackles on Kalen Dorris in the first 15 minutes. And that pretty much shut Doris down for the game. On one of those, Artie Savea gets in over the top and wins a penalty. That makes it 6 0. Uh Savea came up with a handful of, of penalties at the breakdown as well throughout the game. The the back tr- the back row trio of Savea, Kane, and Frizzell when you look back on it completely outplayed the Irish back row.
1: Yeah, they did. And I suppose if you ask the question, where do you go, where do you go to counter Ireland is the breakdown. And where do you start that is by the tackle. You know, dominant tackles, you know, slow that ball down. And then that allows the line to come up and hopefully get in their faces. You know, I think that's the one area that Teams have tried to come out. I suppose that's why. I suppose South Africa ran so close. With could have been either way with with Ireland, and they don't enjoy that. You know, they don't they don't enjoy that ruck, and I suppose that comes from a little bit maybe of the Joe Smith era, and he basically probably knew that as well going in, and I suppose understanding that kind of in your face around the ruck time, and you know um, that they got that through to uh, to to kind of to an extent, but I think they did it consistently, and I suppose the consistent part is is this kind of where I where I sit with these games, you know, the high speed, you know, just relentless pace of it. And I've always asked, I've kind of asked the question along the way about Ireland's depth. And I wonder, you know, as this kind of come back to kind of about them and the minutes played by players. And we saw these mistakes that were uncharacteristically at the end, you know, kind of continuously looking off that breakdown for the for, um, to set the backs up. And in the latter parts of the stages uh, of the game, you know, I just felt those errors were not we're not, we're not like Ireland, you know, and the decisions made around that. And uh, look, you can't miss line out ball either in set piece. But I suppose, as we've seen, New Zealand started very quickly on the front foot. And I suppose I asked the kind of question of should subs be kind of or can you make subs earlier? And I suppose going in this tournament, it's a it's one part real science about rotating your players. And I don't want to use South Africa as a as a comparison, but if you see any 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 spectator can see Khaleesi going off at forty five. Uh, Libach going off at 45, Reynach going off at 45, all these players that are your starters going off at 45, you know, it doesn't happen. I suppose that's what the depth, I suppose, when you talk about players that, you know, and, and Johnny touched on it, you know, you still got a semi-final a final to go. You know, these players are spent. I mean, that was just a massive game to exhaust yourself I'm mean, in the sense of their goal was to win it, I suppose, as as Ireland were to. You know, and you kind of see yourself, did it show then in the New Zealand game that they didn't uh, they couldn't play until that, you know, to that last minute, because that's what you need to do against New Zealand.
0: Yeah, and like you talk about fatigue. I I can't help thinking that when I see the after Ronan Keller had been held up over the line and there's the the goal line dropout which Calen Darris knocks on, and if you look at it from the wide angle, like he's hanging back and you can almost sense the moment where he realized he's kind of under he's kind of yeah. underestimated the the flight of the ball and he has to run up to catch up to it and that's where the the spill arrives and um you kind of wonder does a fresher player a fresher mind you know the the fatigue seeping into the mind does he just take his eye off the ball for that
1: that half a second yeah how that could potentially be. 100%. And it's just that kind of consistent steadiness. And I suppose that's what kind of New Zealand got right. They 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 stayed consistent and they when they got ahead, they knew they just had to make the tackles. Ireland was still making those kind of inroads. They just had to make the tackles. Stay consistent. I suppose, in the, again, in the French, uh, South African, I'm going to touch on later. But again, stay in the fight. Uh, they're going to make meters. They're going to they're gonna score tries. However, when there's the chance to turn over the ball and turn that momentum, they do. And I suppose at the end part there, yeah, it was a It was it, it, it was a, it, it was basically um you know kind of those small little margins we talk about in games that those are the ones that win. I mean, a simple catch, you know, uh, the kind of penalty in, to the latter parts of the stages again, just a little bit of a, a you know brain brain you know kind of explosion of what was going on there in our thoughts, and those are all fatigue. Like that's all related to fatigue, and I suppose that's key in a in in the World Cup because again, I suppose it's that science about. Managing, you need to win the game, but you also know in the back of your mind, you're gonna go through the if you're gonna go through the semis and finals, you need them. So it's it's a it's a real difficult managing role from a from a coaching staff, you know. And uh, I suppose unfortunately Ireland fell on the other side. I think it was a big, you know, it wasn't that they weren't capable. It just I feel that it was a big part of minutes played throughout the tournament. If you see Ireland have a high number, you know, per for their main players, you know, so I suppose and that also leads to things like the set piece.
0: Yeah. And before I come back to the set piece, Johnny, like obviously the other the other one on on that kind of fatigue issue or potential tiredness or anything like that. And I'm where we were kind of going into potentially Monday morning quarterback stuff here. But uh, Jack Crowley obviously didn't play. Looking back at it now, would you have brought him on for Johnny Sexton in those final 10 minutes? Or were you happy for like, you know, Johnny Sexton, arguably the greatest Irish player ever? Are you on the, the side of the fence that, no, I, I actually want him out there. I don't really care if he's a little bit tired. He's the man that can actually make something happen.
2: I think when I'm thinking about these things, I always put my actual coaching hat on. And if I was in that situation, I don't think you take Johnny Sexton off at all. Like, obviously, I'm I'm a Jack Crowley fan. <laughs> like, I know him pretty well. Um, but I still don't think you do it. Like, if I was coaching there, I don't know. If, I don't think I would. Mm-hmm. If, uh, if any coach in the world, including Andy Farrell, had the benefit of hindsight, he'd have changed it just to see. But you know you couldn't do that the first time around. So no, I don't think you would. I think you're he's your general. Even if he's like at times, I thought he was, at 60 minutes, I thought he was quite tired. But then again, there was moments later on in the game where he actually got going. He, I I think if you looked at some of his early moments, that's how he's playing the game anyway, just facilitating things quite a bit. Like you know, um, so yeah, it, it's easy to judge it afterwards. I, I don't think um, I'm not sure if many people would have made that if they were the ones sitting in the coach's box. But mm-hmm. I think it's. Uh, it's very interesting if you go back to the breakdown part of it because the breakdown is winning and losing in the game um, and if you look at new zealand's first effort you know the 20 odd phases that you said it ended up in a tight burn and uh, not rolling away penalty and, and they went three 0 up that is a direct comparison to the scotland game where scotland weren't as good at the breakdown on on both sides of the ball now i mean like new zealand arrived so early at the breakdown um that ireland couldn't get in there and they couldn't get the turnover if you look at Caelan doris getting the turnover against scotland in the first phase of play uh, first long phase of play against Scotland, they got out instead of going 3-0 down. And uh, and maybe because Scotland, you know, they were going to the corner and stuff anyway. But Caelan Dars got the turnover and, and Ireland didn't. And in fact, if if you arrive early at the break, then you're going to end up trapping a player in. And I think Ty Barron did try and roll away. He just got trapped. Oh, you know? yeah, it
0: was it was very like I, I saw when I watched it back on Sunday straight away. I think it was Ethan de DeGroote. Just he kind of like clamps his legs around him. And in fairness, it was it was excellent and very, very smart play by De Groot. That's what you
2: do when you arrive at the breakdown exactly, first. Like, yeah. I I don't know, I don't think the player gets there and says, Oh, I'll trap him in. I think they get into a position, they see they haven't trapped, and they don't let him out. You know, yeah. so you know it, it's very it's fascinating the, the direct comparison between the two games when you're talking about a different level of a like, different animal from New Zealand and their arrival at the breakdown being so And also important. on that and also on that like
0: what a what a, a stupid player or someone who was a little bit less savvy would probably do is Probably drops a shoulder and tries to absolutely clean burn out of it and puts himself at you know at the risk of getting a yellow or red card. But sometimes the this the sneaky thing to do is the right thing to do.
2: They've gone on the front foot and scored first against Ireland, which yeah. you know Ireland normally do that. Um, but I think like the the breakdown as well because and and Bj said it. You know the the contact Sam Kane two mass attackers and Kellen Doris. Um but around the pitch, I think you saw Ireland kind of playing outside of their structures a small bit a little bit less comfortable than what they have been in the past because you know, if you're worried about your breakdown or if you get hit behind the gain line, you have to send someone else and then they're gone from a different pod. And you see the the Josh van der Fleer one, he got turned over. I can't remember who turned him over there. Um but Yeah. Uh, it was after again. he himself
0: and Bundiaki had just got up off the ground and yeah, gave exactly. arc. probably took him really off and
2: left him yeah. Uh, so Bunyaki wasn't even looking, he he reloaded because he assumed they were going to go the same way like they normally do and there was something happening that side so Gibson Park came the other way, Josh Vendorf is on his own and they're outside of their structures and what I mean by that is they don't have their pods together, they don't have the support there and then it's a turnover and that's, they're the kind of things that frustrate you but it's very easy to say oh when the pressure came on they came outside their structures but New Zealand have forced all of this. Side. I think anyone saying that Ireland underperformed are giving um, New Zealand a complete lack of credit because they were absolutely ferocious and phenomenal game played but in uh, tactically and strategically, all over it, and you you get onto the set piece, but I think the kick battle is something that you need to talk through as well because it's a it's a massive part of winning and losing that game.
3: Yeah,
0: uh, that was I have it here. That was 17 minutes. Van der it was Sam Kane, who won the penalty on him. Um, to to move back around then to the to the scrums, Bj. Um, first of all, first question: three pe- the five scrums in total, three penalties against Ireland. Do you think they were the correct decisions?
1: I've looked at them and I do believe, I think they were. I think for me, you know, Porter's unbelievable player, I suppose. But I think, you know, kind of if you look at, if you can say the weakest part of his game would be partly scrummaging. And I think he's shown that. I mean, a couple of decisions, again, I look back at the games Ireland have played against big packs. And I think he was quite lucky against South Africa. O'Keefe actually went after him after the first scrum and says, you need to lift your elbow up, you know. And like, it was actually a clear penalty. Later on in the game, I know Ireland came back at us in that game. And obviously... But I suppose when you do go in these cup matches, set piece is paramount. And I suppose when that when that cycle turns at scrum time, it is first and foremost, um, Let's first scrum sets the tone and we go and we build that momentum through. But when that doubt starts seeking, seeping in, I suppose you get in that kind of a little bit of a survival mode, even at that pro level. I mean, you're thinking harder about the scrum, the next scrum. Decisions going against you. How do I correct this? You know, and it, it definitely overflows into other parts of your game. You're trying to maybe change something, which you shouldn't have. You kind of just trust the process. So this momentum is big from a mental perspective, you know, and I think that then overflows into other parts of your game. And I suppose the other set piece would be the line-out. So, look, I think, I think um, again, New Zealand came and they knew they could kind of take them on there. And, uh, you know, I suppose when you create this momentum, it's also – Difficult for the ref then to kind of completely change that around. I know it takes a real proper ref to kind of uh to kind of real make a big decision there. But I think Bonds was knows exactly what he's you know wouldn't say exactly, but he's one of the better ones in the scrum side, and uh, look, he makes some good decisions. Well, what was what well, what I did think
0: was quite frustrating around those scrums was, um, and I to be honest, I would agree with you as well. I I personally thought they were, they were penalties for New Zealand, and it's equally frustrating that. Wayne Barnes was actually communicating quite clearly with with Porter after the first one what he was and, and and wasn't doing so there was only one scrum in the first half you can you can hear it on the the ref mic start of the second half when the first scrum arrives and I think Tyg Furlong can be heard saying to Wayne Barnes did you check that scrum at half time Barnes said yes we did we thought it was we thought the decision was absolutely fine now this scrum goes off without a hitch but two minutes later Ireland are back down in that corner and they pretty much give away that same penalty and um yep. if you if you consider the fact that like some sometimes a scrum can you know sometimes you can give away a lot of scrum penalties because you're getting dominated and you're, you're almost a little bit helpless but like in that situation in all for all three of those penalties Porter was he was quite dominant he had a a physical dominance over, I don't know, was it Lomax that was in front of him for all three of those, but he was essentially the aggressor in the situation. And you get the feeling that if, if he just held back and just held his position, those penalties weren't going to arrive that, you know, essentially he would have been able to to keep a scrum pretty stable. Now I know they were all on New Zealand's ball and you kind of want to disrupt them a little bit, but like as a prop, do you have to kind of be able to adapt to the situation and adapt to the referee and understand, OK, I've tried to go in at a bit of an angle here on the first one. I didn't get anything out of it. I'm probably not going to get anything out of it next time round
1: again. There's no doubt about that. And I suppose from a technically, to kind of te- technical point of view, um, the loose head really should be, um, in one part, not moving first to, to be the aggressor. You no, know, the loose head is not the aggressor. He needs to remain tight on his hooker, stable. Um, hips facing upwards. It's His kind of strength is coming from his hooker and he's back five. And that needs to be then work in sync. And I suppose it's the old kind of game of who moves first. Unfortunately, a loose head, in this case, Porter moves first. It does open a little bit of a space for the tight head and they just drop their chest down through. And what that, it really just, um, I suppose, opens that space up and it looks a lot worse than it is. You know, I think when we look at scrums, we want to show Gref's black and white pictures, not grey. And I suppose that's one part they know that they've been told with a loose head anyway steps out or looks like he's stepping out and it's any any kind of great p- picture, they're going to be blowing that, you know. And that's unfortunately where you put himself. And as you said, rightly so as a loose head, an experienced loose head, like he is, should be holding and waiting. I suppose that's that's kind of at that point and play that mind game about listen, let's bide our time, let's show some good pictures to the ref. And when when a worst case scenario, we kind of on on the on, on on the defense and basically let's let them play rather than those penalties kind of building up. And it's, again, you know, sometimes you feel like you're in this pit on the the game. You think sheep is everyone's against you. But, you know, in one part, it just takes that one scrum to be solid, you know, build that confidence again and go forward. And, you know, maybe that shows a little bit of the kind of the pressure that was in the game as well. You know, trying to get one over there. Um, And again, as I said, from a technical perspective, the loose head is really, you know, needs to be joined to his hooker. It's it's not an individual action there. You know, you're waiting for that tight head to really get under pressure and and then, you know, be patient and take your time.
0: Yeah. And Johnny, like I'd be wary that you're, we're kind of obviously pinning a lot here just on Andrew Porter, obviously. And to his credit after the, after the, I think it was the second penalty he conceded two minutes later, he comes up with a massive turnover in Ireland's half. And it, it launches a counter attack that's, you know, Ireland, they didn't score off it, but ultimately Ireland had a, had a great chance off that counter attack that he started. But like, when you look through what happened after those penalties as well, they, they, they kind of are expensive. The first one that leads to New Zealand getting those 27 phases and going 3-0 in front. The second one, I know I said, obviously, he he won a turnover back instantly, but it was probably the last... It was probably the, the very, very end of that purple patch Ireland had right at the start of the second half when they were gaining momentum, when they still had a, a man advantage at the same time as well. And, and then the third one was... Jordy Barrett missed the penalty attempt off it, but at the same time it shaved another 60 to 90 seconds off the off the yellow card and again just killed a little bit of the, of the momentum Ireland had after getting that penalty try.
2: Yeah, it's funny because uh, the third one was actually a Ronan Keller a turnover that he was, wasn't was fully confident on. Obviously the, the stage of the game didn't want to give away a penalty and knocked on the ball instead and he was so close to a turnover, which is a, you know, when the when Johnny Sexton and Andy Fardis saying small margins or fine margins, that's a case in point. You know, oh, There were a lot of them. There were a lot of them. And, and that's why I don't think you can be overly critical on how the game played out. Yeah, Ireland went away from... They weren't allowed to play the game that they'd like to have played. Um, but there are such small things that decide these games. Like on, on another day, they win it. And on another day, New Zealand win it again. You know, that's, it's a flip of a coin how that worked out. But it's really interesting to listen to BJ talking about the scrum because like Andrew Porter had that in his game before where he was so keen to to be the aggressor in all, all parts of his game. And I think he did that 20 seconds in turnover or a uh, penalty in the in the, in the the breakdown. And yes, he lost his feet and he didn't mean to do it, but he went raging and, you know, trying to get that ball and trying to get the big play 20 seconds in, two minutes in is that scrum. And, you know, I think if you were New Zealand and Greg Feek was working there, wasn't I wrong on that? Yeah. But he worked with, yeah, he worked with Ireland. So he knows, and the whole world knows that Porter is kind of showing that picture. He hasn't been penalised on it. So obviously he's getting away with it for so long until you get to the game where it matters, and he and he didn't get away with it. But New Zealand obviously knew that, and I saw other analysis saying that you know Lomax knew because uh, the, the part I find interesting that BJ has said there is that you stick to your hooker, and he didn't stick to his hooker. He went for it, and that gave Lomax a little bit of space to get into. It. But if you look at the if you look at the scrum, Lomax went in. You know and that's obviously his job, like BJ said. Um, but that's only me listening to analysis. The, the tight head went in, the loose head's going to have to follow him. But that picture to Wayne Barnes, no one. Like I don't understand this to that, to that level. Definitely, I'm trying to all the time, but I don't. And uh, and it's only the props in the situation will tell you. No, he he brought me in. Wayne Barnes. I don't care how good a referee he is. He could be the best referee in the world, the most experienced in the world. He will never see that. That's Porter's hips out and uh, penalty to to New Zealand. So New Zealand played that unbelievably well without looking very illegal. They played it so well. So like, uh, yeah, there's big moments around it. I think the second when Aaron Smith had just come back onto the pitch I think he literally walked onto the pitch for that one so you had a couple of attacking plays where Ireland could have gone ahead and they didn't and then they get reinstated to 15 scrum penalty out of their own half that's a huge psychological blow you know so there's a again huge moments and small margins is what won the game in the end and you know it's a couple of points but these are the things that you have to track along the way big moments along the way you mentioned and
1: I'll just so I just want to comment on that what Johnny says now but the yellow cards you know I am not going to mention that later but that was was a big part of the game that that Ireland didn't didn't take you know I, I don't think they scored over that time you know and they scored or,
0: just a, just after the the Aaron Smith one they got their yeah. they got their try but you know during the during the like New Zealand got three it won the the second yellow card 3-0 so it was just yeah. the penalty try
1: so that was the crucial one That was the crucial one. Exactly. And I mean, during that time, you know, that that attritional play from Ireland that they do play and keep that ball in hand and how they work those phases, you know, should have gone some reward there. And I wonder if that was another kind of, you know, real mental kind of, um, I suppose, difficulty around that and them not making any inroads around that and actually then New Zealand lifting themselves and they taking real confidence from that, you know. So I think that was another kind of uh, thing that New Zealand could take, you know, kind of confidence and suddenly their man comes on and, you know, they just said, well, run at us. We'll, we'll do 34 phases. No problem. You know? Um, and again, as Johnny says, it's just such, such fine margins. And those are the little things as we've known and we've seen with, with both quarterfinals this weekend that, uh, that are, that, that could tip either way. And, you know, the, the team that takes advantage of those are the ones that win. Johnny, you mentioned the, the kicking earlier on and the kick battle and,
0: Certainly in the air, it looked like Leicester Fanganukun and Will Jordan probably get the better of the of the Irish backfield. What was your overall impression of the... Are you talking about... When you mentioned the kicking there, are you specifically talking about high kicks up and unders or
2: even just those little chips through from Bowden Barrett and Richie Mwang in the first half? Yeah, I, I just happened to stumble across the stat beforehand that I think Ireland were the top scorers from line-out in the whole competition before that game. So then when you see... Um and it's funny when you don't know these things, you're like, geez, New Zealand missed They didn't mistouch touch at all. You know, they went contestable, they went on on the pitch, and and uh and it's funny like that we don't know at this level, you know, that they're the things they're talking about. So they obviously kept the ball in play, and that's why the ball in playtime was as high as what it was, because they meant to do that. Um whether they thought they could get Ireland in the ball in playtime or whether they thought they'd just take them away from set piece, I'm not entirely sure, because they obviously disrupted the set piece to a degree as well. Um but then when you look at the kick battle, yeah, they won some back, definitely. Um, but also the first try that broke the game up, that went 13-0 ahead, that was a kick battle that, you know, I think it was kicked long to low and low kicked it back and then Barrett, chip kick, gathers and uh, fast play. And when you look at it, it's, uh, everyone says like, you know, Geordie Barrett to Fanganuku is it? Or uh, Ioane. And, and it was, was Fang- Fanganuka to Ioane and back to Fanganuka. Back uh, when you look at the pass before that, it's Tyrell Lomax at... at uh, the kind of traditional 10 spot first pass just shifted to Geordie Barrett. It's a collective understanding. It's unbelievable. You know, so it's not just, Oh, they're, they fullback one at back and they're 12, uh, you know, slinging it away to their other backs. There's a prop in the middle of that tight head prop. Brendan would be proud of catching, passing and getting their attack on. And that's such fastball. That's the kick battle that I'm talking about, you know, winning the territory, winning possession, fastball, catching them on the hop a small bit and bang, bang, and are in the corner. Like that's, you know, and I think they they stuck with it. There was stats there this morning that I saw. New Zealand had 34 kicks, I think. To Ireland's 20, and Ireland did try and kick the ball. In some some uh, stages, they were kicking him behind. I think they actually panicked a small bit in the second half. You had uh, Mac Hansen going right to left, or right to left, and off his right foot tried to kick one through. I know he can do it, but that's a difficult kick. And then when it gets blocked, you're not surprised. He had another nice one into the the opposite corner, left to right, that he executed. Uh, he just missed the tackle on Barrett, didn't he? Um, and then that was when his calf was in trouble. But like Johnny Sexton would have chip ahead for himself. I've never, I I have seen him do it, but when was the last time you saw him do it? Mm. Normally when you're in control, you chip for someone else who's on rushing, but chipping for himself. And then the mark got called. I think the kick selection was based off not winning the game line. I think New Zealand kicked on the front foot and it was absolutely their kick strategy, get out of their own half. Even when Aaron Smith was off the pitch for the yellow card, Richie Mwanga kicked a box kick. You know, it kind of went slightly infield, but that was obviously their strategy and they were all bought into it. Thirty-four kicks. I think um was it South Africa or someone else was was just one kick ahead of them or something like that, but they were they were quite high in terms of kicks uh yeah. in possession.
0: Yeah, I think I saw this morning all four of the quarterfinal winners at the weekend kicked more than their kicked more than their opposition and New Zealand eighty five percent of possession in their own half was kicked on in the game on Saturday. And it just goes to show as well, BJ, that we do complain a lot about kicking, and I think it's probably specifically box kicking. People complain about, but people talk about when games become a kick fest. But <laughs> you can have a brilliant, brilliant game of rugby that is heavy on the kicking. It's 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 no it's no driver of whether a game is good or not,
1: especially when it comes off. <laughs> yeah, and, as, uh, as we'll
0: get to, as we'll know, get to with South Africa because a couple uh, of their tries in that first half came directly yeah. off targeting
1: targeting on the French midfield. 100%. And, as, and New Zealand showed that. And, you know, that's there's, there's a risk factor there. I mean, there's a risk factor. But what I suppose New Zealand also planned around this, and they know that risk will pay off, you know, I suppose they're one of the best, I suppose, if not the best in their transitional play of loose ball. And I suppose if you create that loose play a little bit, the individual brilliance is really good. They, as Johnny said, they're just so connected with that. They understand exactly where to go from a default perspective. They know they get that ball back. They know exactly where they're going. And then the defense is just in tatters. And I suppose that's where the, it came off almost every single time for them. And as, 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 as Johnny just alluded to you now, when, 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 when tried it and Johnny tried it, you know, it was kind of forced in one sense, maybe not a pre plan, you know? So look, Kicking is is, is 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 again as they say, the whole cliché is only as good as your choice. And I suppose that really is 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 in line with the past two weekends about how we almost pre plan that and understand and you know just back that it's gonna come off and we go and we just back it. And I suppose those are those key factors that, you know, pay off and you know, in in, in the New Zealand game it did. And uh, I suppose Ireland were on the other side of it. Mm-hmm.
2: And Johnny. I'm just, loves- um, not sorry. The, when you say that kind of, you think about the kicking game ruining the game that you want to run everything. We all think that France are all this. jouet, play all sorts of rugby, but yeah. they kick the ball the most. You know, so like obviously they didn't at the beginning, but they were quite close to it, uh, and that's their strategy. You can see small little kicks in behind from Dupont. Even when they're chasing the game, at times they kick them in behind. So like you know that that kind of stops the whole idea of kicking ruins the game. Now dead kicks and not putting them back and not. I think when you see you know Irish teams back along, I think Munster got a lot of flack for it. They didn't have that transition that BJ has said. You know, New Zealand they're so dangerous on transition. I think you're uh, you're discrediting your own BJ. I'd say they're probably the best at uh, the transition. You look at their uh, their tries that you were going to say Neil. Their their first three tries were off kick transition. You know, they the first one was a simple box kick that you know just bounced off uh, Walky. I think it was at the wrong one, that bounced off someone, and currently um, Aaron they just picked it up and cantered in. So it was the first yeah. one and you see the second one was most interesting because LeBoc is like you know 30 40 meters away from a group of four there's one person in between who's not a realistic option and they're clearly kicking there to to get it back i remember yeah. rob you do that with us bj that there was a hit up the middle and then your your center and your full back just flake away to the touch because there's a kick, yeah. kick and that's why it caught my my eye because there was like four of them waiting over there peter steph to tight was uh was over there a lot yeah. and uh and that's where De'Alande got the line break from it and there was a phase open and De Lande back line and he scored. And then the third mm-hmm. one was transitioned then. I know it's a poor pass from Dupont to, to, to buy, and he was on the ground trying to flick a pass, which they actually got away with quite a bit. They had a lot of unbelievable handling. But, yeah, um,
1: that comes from pressure.
2: Yeah, and it was Peter Settetoy. It was the pass to Jesse Creel, kick along the ground, yep. all they try. So yeah. thinking, unbelievable how well they transitioned, but they know what they're doing. They know why they're doing yeah. it. The spark when they see a little fumble. You see the whole thing spark up. And everyone's looking for it, and it's not just lazy. Oh, where's it gone? Yeah. On the ball, the and then they're gone again. You
0: know, Johnny. 100%. Just to just to hop back in with one final point on on the Ireland game, and we'll go back to South Africa and France then. But obviously, it would be remiss of us not to mention Johnny Sexton and Keith Earls as well, who've who finished up. And as Andy Farrell said afterwards, like this is this is very much the end of an era now. Uh, Peter O'Mahony said it afterwards as well that he'll have to give a good bit of thought to his own future. I'm not sure that he mean test rugby or rugby in general. His contract is up at the end of the season. He's 34. You have other guys there like, like Connor Murray, like Bundy Aki, who are 33, 34 years of age as well. So in four years time, there is going to be a, a very, very different looking Irish team out there. But, and I suppose we'll, we'll talk about that maybe a little bit more in the, the weeks and months to come, but, um the final thoughts, you could see it after the game, just how badly the players had wanted to do it for someone like Johnny Sexton. And pretty much all of them said it afterwards in the in the press conferences and in the in the mix on when they were speaking to the media. Um, just how big the motivation was to to give Johnny Sexton the send-off
2: he deserved. There's one thing before I go into that, I think the, when you look at the, the age profile of, of the team and you do have a lot of 33, 34-year-olds and we assume that they're going to be done as well for the next cup, world cup cycle but i think Johnny Sexton has shown us that let's not um discount them but at the same time he's an outlier you know so yeah. i don't know if you know man is going to the next world cup at 38 and Conor Murray and Bundyaki and these <laughs> lads uh, especially when they play a, such a nutritional game some of them but and Keane Healy's 36 you know i think the is disappointing part of that for Arzy is that he didn't get to mm. have a proper walk around the pitch really in his gear if you know what i mean um and maybe Keane Healy won't get the same you know, whether he stays on or not. But um yeah, just back to your point, I think Johnny Sexton um fighting through the last two years of people having all sorts of comments on him, saying what he should and shouldn't be doing and whether whether Ireland should and shouldn't select him. I think he's proven his point time and time again and he's proven himself again in this World Cup. Ireland were are a different animal with him. They're going to miss him terribly um despite what I believe is coming through. And uh you know, obviously you can see that like you said through what the players are saying. Um, it was nearly like yeah, we're, we're knocked out of the World Cup, but the bigger issue was we didn't give Johnny what he deserved. I think it was it was actually quite stark how um little they were talking about the World Cup exit and how much they were talking about Johnny Sexton. Mm. You know, so I think you know there's there's an outside perspective on what he is and you know how he handles certain situations. But by God, <laughs> like he's uh, an unbelievable guy. I think uh, an unbelievable figure for Irish rugby, and I think I don't think you can underestimate what he's done for them. So I think he deserves every every bit of uh, pouring people's hearts out over him I think he deserves every bit of that
0: and BJ it's fascinating to think that four years ago a lot of people wondered had we stuck with Johnny Sexton too long he was 34 at that stage and I think people were wondering should maybe he have been kind of slowly pushed towards the exit door a year or so before that World Cup whereas you look at him now he's gone out four years later and he's playing better than he has probably been at any stage in the last three or four years like he's pretty close to the top of his game now that he is retiring it's it's a remarkable turnaround
1: four more years (laughs) (laughs) no it's uh, unbelievable and I mean that sport really is ruthless it's just so ruthless as you say people want your head and kind of don't understand the process about kind of integrating and how important Johnny is to the side from a mental perspective, even if he's not on form and you know, he's kind of biggest critic. He'll tell you, I mean the, what he brings is that calmness and that flow. I mean, when he's on the field, that Irish side is just a different, different animal. It just flows. And we understand how it, it works. And he's just that kind of, you know, brain behind it really. And I suppose, you know, he's shown now has his maturity, the experience. I mean, the class of him, as a, as a player how he's kind of as you said finished off on a on a on a huge high unfortunately not on his terms and the sense of the outcome of the world cup but in that sport and it's ruthless there's no one really at this level kind of getting fairy tale endings you know it's um but yeah, you'll be a you'll be kind of I don't know from from our perspective if he's Ireland's best ever. A lot of those words are going around, but he's definitely um, one of the best of the of the Irish ever. And uh, look, you'll kind of I think look back now, and I think I'm not too sure how many years he's still got, you know, in the, on the provincial side. But he's, it looks like he's got a few more left in him anyway.
0: Um. So that's Ireland New Zealand, arguably the the best rugby World Cup quarter final ever. Um, for twenty four hours, and then South Africa and France just lit lit <laughs> up the stand of France. Um, the yeah. there was just so many fascinating things in this game, Bj, and it was a remarkable game of rugby anyway. But then also you just had these handful of bizarre things, these these random incidents, like uh the the mark being called off a scrum, uh Thomas Ramos's conversion being charged down. You had uh, Cheslin Colby attempting a, a box drop goal attempt. Like, so many just bizarre little random things that we wouldn't have seen in a game for 20 years as well. It it was a game that had absolutely
1: everything. There's no doubt. I mean, it's just, it was incredible. To and fro, what a spectacle and so entertaining. I think if you didn't know what rugby was, you'd come in there and just think, what a game. Yeah. You know, and um, incredible, you know, two juggernauts going at each other, especially what, it's what we kind of expected, you know in one part what we but we didn't know it would happen in that way you know and I think I suppose the one side of talking about the inches in these big games would we definitely we'll look at um, we'll look at kind of Ches and Colby's charge down you know I think uh, Ches and Colby's you know, it, it, it ended up someone told me during the game this could be a massive turning point in the game. And, and it was, you know, and I mean, that's the kind of inches you talk about, you know, the pre bizarre things. Like I've even asked uh, how many people have ever seen kind of how quick Willemson made the decision on a scrum. And I suppose as we've heard from Rossi now, it was pre-planned. You know, they knew that they had to, you know, they didn't want to give the, give the kind of French any lineouts. Uh, they wanted to kind of sap their legs, get them tired and bring them into scrum. South Africans were, you know, confident enough at scrum time, bring them into the scrum, even in their own 22. Again, another mental statement, you know, it's like, I'm sure the French side thought, what's going on yeah? You know, I can't believe we got this opportunity to kind of, you know, scrum them in their 22 and then South Africa, obviously, you know, went from there and uh, look, I mean, it was just filled with all these kind of bizarre moments, but I suppose that's what made it a spectacle in itself and uh, again, as I said, the, the trials were just Quite incredible, um, you know, some of two phases, and then there you have it. And I suppose we look back at this game and definitely be, you know, stand the test of time. And I suppose we were kind of um, in one part, uh, you know, happy enough to get on the other side.
0: Yeah, and Johnny Bijan mentioned obviously the the taking the scrum off the mark in the twenty-two. It it feels like such a small little thing to be talking about in the context of what was such an unbelievable game. But the explanation, I presume, you saw it as well that Razi Erasmus gave in the press conference afterwards for what their thinking was behind it. Like it just it really does show that for for someone we love to talk about as being a controversial figure, at times at times a bit of a joker, at times maybe crossing the line a little bit too much. But when you look at that, when you look at something like the the 7 1 split and the 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 way he thinks about the game, um it's just another reminder that Razzy Erasmus is a remarkable innovator in the game. And seems to be thinking about it in a way that not many coaches if any other coaches are thinking about I think you've actually
2: put that very well because I was just going to call him a genius <laughs> but like a remarkable <laughs> innovator is a, is a really nice way bad to scientist put it. as well like you <laughs> yeah, and he is but when you bring it back to it like doing these things that are a little bit different is grand if you've got an opportunity to do it and people think you're, you're mad for doing it but as a coach you have to go out on that sword so if he lost the game he has to be able to stand up and say, yes, I did go for a scrum off a of mark, and yes, I did do this, and yes, I did do that, yes, I did hold up a traffic home, a traffic light, you know. So, like, I, I think you have to be able to level with yourself that this is the right decision and that you can back it whether you win or lose, you know, and that's the big part for me as a coach, that you have to be able to explain it. Like, when you win, it's easy to go, yeah, I've done it, and have a laugh off it, but he's not laughing at that, he means it, you know. So, that's that's the, I think that's the remarkable bit about, about it for me, that he, he thinks so differently, but he, he believes it's the right thing to do. He's not just doing it to to go after the status quo. Like, you know, he's doing it because he believes it's the it's the next way to keep South Africa on top of the game. And at the moment you feel like they are on top of the game. You know, they're they did it in 2019 with his remarkable innovation, maybe around his environment and what he did for the country and bringing them all together and getting them all to turn around from 2017 to 2019. Backing up a World Cup, let's see if he can do it because it's surely the hardest thing he'll do. I know New Zealand have done it, but like backing anything up is is ferocious because you're, you're, you're the targets on your back. Like, you know, so the fact that he's able to, the the clarity of thought that he has around these things, that's what I find incredible, you know, so we'll, uh, we'll, we won't slag him off anymore. I think he's, uh, he's winning this one. Please, just on that, I mean,
1: I just want to say, on Johnny, there, you know, one thing backing your plan as a coach, but another thing getting players to buy into that, yeah. you know, for the game and the plan. I mean, as a player, you almost got these kind of habitual habits within the game. You understand the pressure and you kind of know what to do around those areas. But what Russie, you know, gets done is, is the full buy in for the plan and the game. And if it comes off, well, then we win. But everyone needs to be on that mark, and it's a it's, it's times as I said that these are risky, risky situations. You know, it's it's you know, and but it comes off, and it only comes off because you have the full buy-in. and that's the key with them. I suppose that it's 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 in line with their defence. You know, their defences is, is that bind that we know when they come off the line, everyone needs to bind. One person holds or is a little, and the guard breaks through, and it's completely it's a try or it's points. So I suppose they've got they, they've developed this mental kind of, you know, I suppose, attribute, you know, over the years as a team and as a squad, as a culture. And that coachability, Russ, speaks a lot about, you know, about players and how they fill in with the culture and how they fill in with the team. So he's managed to do that. And that's another big part of his coaching, you know, kind of um, coaching, you know, kind of persona that he's managed to do this, you know. And and I suppose that's why the players play for him. They back the plan 100%. And if it doesn't come off and you can see the kind of way Khaleesi speaks about it, you know, he's just almost kind of quite quite relaxed and said, well, yeah, we we, we kind of had a plan, and we went with it. It, it, it. He doesn't really show pressure at these times. He's not stressed. I mean, it's almost like, well, if it came off, it comes off. And thankfully it came off, you know. So it's an unbelievable environment to be involved in, I'm sure.
2: You're right, they're like indoctrinated, aren't they? And that goes into the kick strategy as well. Because if you're on the halfway line and you're telling a player to kick it up high over there, they like, sure, I can play ball here. Like players want to play, you know. So if you players will kind of say, but why am I kicking it? I want to play it. And you have to be able to show them or get them to believe that this is the right thing. Obviously, it's quite easy when you get three tries off it, but he's done that before they got the three tries in the Brands game. So like his buy-in, uh, BJ, you're, you're spot on. It's unreal, isn't it? The way he gets people just believe in his plan and you can see the way they spark after they get turnovers and all the rest of it. That's what they're waiting for. And now we're in, you know, and it's it's a, it's a lesson, I think, to coaches as well that it's not just ideas. It's, it's the buy-in afterwards.
0: Yeah, and I do feel uh, while I probably would have preferred to talk a little bit more about that South Africa uh, performance, I do have a feeling we're going to be talking a bit about the Springboks over the next 10 days, two weeks. So um, we can bide our time on that one. BJ and Johnny, thanks a million for joining us on the RT Rugby Podcast. Coming up in uh, just a quick moment, I'm going to be joined by Ilta Daffod to get the word from France and how they've been reacting to their World Cup elimination. Now, you're very welcome back to the RT Rugby World Cup podcast. I'm delighted now to be joined by Iltud Daffod, a journalist based for the AFP news agency in France. Iltud, thanks a million for coming onto to the pod. Good to see you again.
3: Uh, pleasure. Thanks for having me on.
0: Um, I was I was lucky enough to be in Paris over the weekend and on Sunday afternoon before the France and South Africa match took a stroll around and obviously there were plenty of Irish fans Kind of walking around like zombies, still in shock after what had happened on on Saturday night. But like there was just such a a great atmosphere around there. It was kind of three four o'clock in the afternoon. the The French fans were settling in, sitting outside a few bars. You know, there was a bit of singing going on. Really nice atmosphere. I'm curious to know, like, what's the the atmosphere been like since? Because over the weekend, obviously, during the day, you you got a real sense that there was something happening in Paris. That this this tournament was there. And I suppose I'd be curious to see what the the reaction and the the fallout has been in Paris, and with with the likes of Ireland and the host France now out of it, is there any sense that this tournament could get a little bit lost over the next couple of weeks?
3: Yeah, it's weird because Paris is such a big city that any sort mm. of event kind of can, can can get lost. Paris Fashion Week, you, unless you're in the right places, you're not going to know what's happening. You were 2016 football, okay, because there was games in the Parc de France and the Stade de France, so it kind of took over the whole city to a certain extent. The Olympics next year it will definitely take over because you've got events all across the city. But the World Cup did find it hard to kind of, you kind of didn't really get the feel that you were, the World Cup was on really until you you knew it all went yeah, yeah. exactly went, went to the stadium etc but over the weekend you're right there was a different feeling so I went for a coffee with um some journalistic colleagues on Sunday morning and like in an area which is not touristy at all behind Montmartre and Sacre Coeur if you know of know Paris uh, quite well which is a very residential area no tourists and there was springbok jerseys everywhere you know and you did feel oh wow this this is getting somewhere this is momentum and then it definitely helps the France would in the competition doing well Um and yeah it's just all come down to a damp squib now really especially because the Irish travel so well as well and they would have mm. travelled even more so for semi-finals and, and then the finals or third place playoff uh, the French get behind their national sport teams like no one other especially they they, they, they love jumping on successful bandwagons um, but yeah the, the day after was, was quite difficult you felt like um uh, well, I finished work at two in the morning, so I was tired anyway, and anyone who I talked, spoke to, friends on WhatsApp groups, uh, my wife was French, it just felt like uh, there was almost like a, there was a bit of mourning to do and acceptance of grief and etc, cetera, etc. Cetera. So yeah, it was dark and I'm looking ahead now, um, it might be difficult for this tournament to live up to its, its expectation with France out and Ireland out. Um Monday morning, I got through texts from people saying, "Do you know, anyone wants to buy any tickets to the semi-finals?" Because people just want to get rid of them because they just don't want to go anymore, you know. And it's understandable that to a certain extent. Um. So yeah, we'll be interesting to see what what ticket sales and what the attendances are like on the weekend. But it won't it will definitely won't be the same atmosphere over the weekend in Paris as there would have been if Ireland and France and, dare I say, maybe Wales were in it as well.
0: Yeah, and I think that's the the point a lot of people are making as well as while. It was probably the best it was probably the best weekend of Rugby World Cup we've ever seen in the tournament. It felt like it should have been a semi finals weekend rather than a rather than a quarterfinals weekend and it does feel like we're kind of in this strange holding pattern you know no disrespect to England and Argentina up until we're getting a new zealand and and South africa final the the draw the fact that the draw has kind of given us this layout has been. It's certainly been criticised a lot in Ireland over the last twelve eighteen months. Ever since Ireland probably got up towards the the top of the world rankings, I'd be curious to know has has it received the same level of scrutiny or or criticism in France that it ended up being so lopsided.
3: I don't know. I would highly doubt. I think the some people in Ireland maybe have made too much of it. I don't. I I might say because. From where I stand, personally, not a Frenchman, not representing French media, just as an individual who likes rugby, I think you just have to, to be the best, you have to beat the best, to be that in the groups and the quarters, obviously not now in the semis if you're <laughs> in New Zealand or in the final, you know, but then in France, it's been less because um, the French, I think Galtier is more like, actually, we'll just deal the hand that's given to us, you know, and that's just how it is, and if you have to beat New Zealand in the opening game and then potentially would have had to beat them in the final as well. That's what they would have taken, you know? And yeah, it was it, it was discussed all over the world, really, wasn't it? Because it was a talking point and it was on reflection, World Rugby made a mistake. And I'm sure internally they are discussing about how they can make that better and maybe hold the withdrawal two years out before World Cup halfway to be able to balance out a bit more. Um, and then we should see a better, more balanced side of things in, in, in Australian for this time.
0: Um the reaction to the defeat itself then for France on, on Sunday? Um I'd be curious to know. Obviously, Antoine Dupont, for example, uh was quite critical of the referee Ben O'Keefe after the game. Um, what has the coverage and the breakdown of the, the criticism been uh and the scrutiny been? Has it been still largely on Ben O'Keefe or like like what I'm kind of getting at, has that shone a light off of maybe some of the the failings of the French team or of or of Galtier or of mistakes they made in the game, has the the focus on the referees still been the the main point over the last couple of days?
3: Yeah, it was interesting to be at the press conference to hear uh, Antoine Dupont complain because he really makes comments about referees, and he, he I've never heard him for Toulouse or for France ever criticize any officiating decision ever. Be that a TMO decision or a referee decision or like a foot in touch, you know, the smallest thing, he just doesn't, just ignores it or brushes it in the carpet or just goes on with it. But he was in the way that when the question was asked, his reply was he asked the journalist back, what did you think of it? And then there was a moment between him and Galtier who were like, who it was as if Dupont wanted Galtier to reassure him and to allow, allow him to go ahead to criticize the referee. Galte did so, so then Dupont did so as well. Um, and yeah, Le Keep's on Tuesday. Le Keep, it's the reasons of a failure is on the cover, and there's a man in the left bottom of the corner, which is Ben O'Keefe. And so yeah, they they're still to quote Galate, uh, Dupont, they're still bitter because he said he didn't want to be the bitter individual who after the, or a bad lose after the game, but they are still bitter. They're still frustrated. Yeah, there's an element of self. Criticism, definitely. Um, bizarrely, there's some people asking about galtier's future, but he's got a contract until June 2028, and he will still be there. That's um, 99.9% sure. Um, uh, and yeah, there's, a, there's obviously some criticism regarding that they were tactically outdone in the end, and maybe South Africa outdid them with the substitutions, definitely, in the last half an hour. Um, but apart from that, it was it was a really good game, wasn't it? And I think that the first half an hour was probably the best rugby We've seen all tournament, really, I'd say, you know, and uh, it's just a, it's a shame for France that's that happened. But it's great for guys like Sia Kalisi, who probably will end his Springboks career at the end of the World Cup. And hopefully he can, he can finish it with retaining the trophy.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, it, it's it's, like you mentioned that first half an hour. The, the two games I found remarkably similar from the, the atmosphere and the crowd point of view where... In the Ireland-New Zealand game, obviously the atmosphere was rocking for that opening half and before the game as well. And as the match wore on, despite the fact that the Irish crowd were were there in such numbers, you could really sense the tension. There wasn't as much singing going on in the second half as people just got very nervous. And similarly in Paris on on Saturday night, where Le Marseille came out about five, six times in the opening 40 minutes... <laughs> And then yeah. midway through the second half, I heard it again. I, thought, oh, geez, I haven't heard that in about an hour. <laughs> yeah, you know, Like they really tapered off and the nerves obviously came in. But um, the other the other part I'm interested to know with uh, the scrutiny, how much has Thomas Ramos's conversion been spoken about? And I mean, ultimately, it's a one point game and to see a conversion blocked down. The only time I can ever remember it happening is in like a barbarians game. I can never remember seeing this in a game of consequence. How much has that been highlighted, spoken of? Uh, Is there any scapegoating of him?
3: It happened to me once at university. So I, I know what happened. I know how Ramos feel, feels to a certain extent. It happened to you in university. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so yeah, but it, it's a long time ago and they're two very different standards of rugby. Um, and th- no, there hasn't been criticism of Ramos really. It's all been about uh, Ben O'Keefe and how his officiating should have at least had a look at it because, okay, Chesney Colby is one of the quickest players yeah. in the world rugby. He's uh, Wade Van Niekirk's cousin. He's a, seven, a former sevens player. Like he's got gas, but is he that quick? I don't know. Uh, and also, he said, uh, 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 Colby said afterwards that he he knows Ramos well, so he knows his movement. I'm sure they would have looked at it because Razi Rasmus and Jack Neymar do, they look at the most finite, smallest, metic- meticulous details. They're the best at that. But I, yeah, there, there's been a lot of criticism with the amount of times I've seen that video of every single angle on social media this week. Um yeah, it's more towards the referee. Should I look at Ramos? is is uh, is, is not got away with it, but it's, there's no pointing fingers at him. And I think that's also because of his character. You know, he's such a reliable kicker on the field and, and he's a great player to watch. And off the field, he's such a nice guy. You, you never see him come out and say negative things or be brass. He's a quite a, just a normal bloke who plays rugby, you know, so I think that might play a part of it as well.
0: Um. Obviously, in Ireland, we're dealing with the likes of Johnny Sexton retiring, Keith Earls retiring. There's a few others who maybe in the next couple of years will be contemplating the same as well. Peter O'Mahony suggested he'll be considering his future over the next few months. Um, after the France game, Winnie Antonio, Roman Tafafanua, both retiring from, from test rugby at least. Are there any others... Uh, you're expecting or or players that are likely to be considering things over the, over the next 12 months. Like what's that transition going to be between, between now and then obviously there's still a very, very young and young core of the team with Dupont, with Roman Entomac, uh, uh, Jalabert. There's quite a lot of guys who are in that, that peak age of the, the early and mid twenties that have one or even two world cups ahead of them. But are there other guys who are going to be considering things over the next 12 months?
3: Yeah, I think it's you know, your spot on there. The, the age range and the age profile of this is a France teams, apart from Taufi and Antonio. They're all either they're all between 24 and 26, 27. Okay, Galfiko is 29, but you'd think he could be able to go on for another four years. Joe Dante is 31, which so potentially I think he would be the third one to retire or not make it to the World Cup. He might push out for a few Six Nations because he's so powerful and so such a great player, you know. Um, but at the same time, they've got plenty of r- resources behind to, to replace him. Yamo, Fana, and Arthur Vansom were in the World Cup squad. Emilien Ga- Gaetan, who was the top 14s, top try scorer last season, he was the France the twenties captain. Um, he's also an option as well. So they've got choices there. Um, but across the board, I think they're quite safe. Dupont will only be will only be thirty by the time the next uh, World Cup comes around. Greg Aldrit is the same; he'll be thirty. And some people say that, they, but. Between the age of twenty eight and thirty, that's your peak in, as a as a sport as a sportsman. So a frightening France, yeah, a France looking even better, but then I don't know. But there there won't be too many changes player-wise, but coaching wise, um backs coach on l'obit going to Staff Francais as director of rugby Cam Gazal, the lineups coach is going there as head coach. Um uh, Thibaut Jehu, who's the very influential head of physio and conditioning he's going to Baldo Beagle so there's a few more changes I'd say in the background stuff but that's already been sorted out uh, Fabian Galte already knows who's coming in so there's not too much change there despite they're, they're being changed Galte's plans stuff already and knows who he's, he's, he's going to have for the next four years So
0: yeah and it, then the final thought is there any it's curious to see over the next weeks and months what the the potential hangover is going to be between the players and the coaches and and even just the team in general like there's I'm curious to see how both Ireland and France are looking when they meet in, in Marseille for that opening game of the Six Nations uh, in what, two, three months' time.
3: Yeah, it's, it's something uh, Gregory Aldrich said in the mix on afterwards that, okay, maybe this was, I don't know how much, gen, how authentic he was in saying this, but he did say it that we're lucky that we've got the Six Nations in three months' time that, that island game could come around quickly and also they've got big stakes in the top 14 in the Champions, League, in the Champions Cup because French club is so strong a bit like the Irish domestic scene that the guys want to play for the provinces or the clubs you know big interpro pro derbies on the way or big Champions Cup fixtures on the way okay it's nothing to compare with uh, World Cup quarters and semis but it's something to hold on to I guess and uh, there's a bit of pressure from the, from, from the French clubs to get the players back as well because they missed them especially someone like Toulouse who had some yeah. players missing so
0: yeah, I I finally then out of curiosity, actually, when are when would you expect to see a lot of the, the big hitters in particular back in top fourteen? Like uh we're still curious to see from an Irish point of view. Generally, the Irish players probably get a little bit more time off than the French would. And I think it was yesterday, uh Connacht, for example, at their press conference were saying probably three to four weeks. Uh for if you're talking Connacht, it's probably Mac Hansen and Bundiaki. Are probably in the the four week mark at least. Maybe someone like Finley Beale, who didn't play as much, could be three weeks. What are you expecting to see in France in terms of getting those those guys in the squad back into back into games?
3: Yeah, the French players won't have that much, definitely for <laughs> sure. <laughs> <laughs> no, but it. it, it... Right now, there's a really healthy relationship between the league and the federation. So between with the agreement they had before the World Cup that if the, if France were knocked out at the quarterfinals, then the players would have to have at least one week off, off totally holidays, and then five days training, and then they could play. So you would say that maybe they, they could be back in time to play the the fourth round of the of the top fourteen, which is the first round of the World Cup, which will be the day after the World Cup final on the 29th of October, um, but it's highly unlikely that a lot of the guy, the French equivalents of Aki, so Joe Dante and um, uh, Mac Hansen, so Damien Peno, will go will go straight in to uh, top fourteen games that weekend. But the guys like on the bench, uh, so Philippe Belum's example, would be I don't know Dorian de Degay, maybe could go straight back in to play for Toulouse um, on that. Uh, Fourth fourth match there at the end of October. So yeah, like they all players deserve a rest. Every single one, you know, because they put so much. Especially maybe the French, the Irish have got maybe done less work because guys from like Samoa have gone all the way over there to yeah. the Pacific and come back and been away from the families and now going back straight into club rugby. So, yeah, it's like it's another example of why a lot of people think that global calendar should be discussed more and be balked before because this would help people get more consistency and player welfare would, 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 would be far more of a priority. So, yeah, but yeah, the French players will be back sooner uh, than later, I'd say so. Yeah,
0: it never ends. Champions Cup around the corner and Six Nations not too not too far away after that. Listen, Ilter, it's been great chatting to you. Enjoy the, the last few weeks of the, the Rugby World Cup and I'm sure we'll speak to you again, possibly before the Six Nations.
3: Cheers, thank you very much. The RTE Rugby World
0: Cup podcast sponsored by Bank of Ireland.